from Kurtco Media. I handed him my business card off stage and my Haggerty business card. He kind of looks at Haggerty, what is that? And I explain what I do. And he kind of got serious all of a sudden. He looked me in the eye and he said, I'm so sorry, I'm putting you out of business. And he grabbed my arm and said, seriously, you have to find something else to do. I like to think I understand this car world. And I think the passion for cars runs deep. I think it's much bigger than like the vicissitudes of an economy or just like little trends or even preferences for cars. It's bigger than preferences. But I did not have a quick response. It bugged me. And I went back home a week later and I was telling my team, I'm like, I was bothered by the fact that I know this guy is telling a truth about our future and some of it will come true. And I know we tell a truth about the future of the car world. And I know part of our truth will come true, but I didn't have that answer. I didn't have that story. I didn't have the overarching story. And so we work diligently looking at this challenge. How big of a challenge is it that people will drive or not want to drive or the next gen? We did all these studies and studied the global perspective and the North American perspective in particular and realize there does need to be a champion for driving. We got to be the business that helps save driving and car culture for future generations. And not because it's just this thing we're going to fight for. It's about freedom. It's about space. It's about independence. It's about all of these other themes, not just about automation and efficiency and robotics and technology in the new economy. So it's been our mission and we are hardcore on it. That was the voice of McKeel Haggerty, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to another episode of Cars That Matter. I have a very special guest today, McKeel Haggerty, CEO of Haggerty Group. McKeel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to hear your voice again. Well, I think we've probably been hearing a lot of voices over the course of the last year and not seeing many people, but certainly you and I haven't talked in at least that long, and it's great to get together again. Heaven knows a lot of water has gone under the bridge over the last 12 months, and hey, we're here to talk about it. Yeah, we're just standing on the bridge today together. So we'll have that conversation. <laughs> a lot of stuff's going on, but just to kind of set the stage, we met each other in the stone age when it comes to classic cars. I think probably back around 2005 or 2006 or something like that. The collecting landscape was kind of starting to change right about then. I remember we had some lunches, we did some interviews up in Monterey at the Quail, and we bump into each other all the time back when events and auctions were a physical reality. But now I see every month with my magazine, Haggerty Drivers Club, which arrives in the mail, and that's a refreshing change from most of the stuff that ends up in the mailbox. So I want to thank you for that. Obviously, talk about some of those initiatives. I think anybody who's a diehard car lover knows your name, whether or not they insure with your company, because your company company does a whole lot more than that. Lots of ways to interact with us. And that was by design over this long period of time, because so much has changed since that famous lunch at Chateau Marmont and all of those conversations <laughs> at those terrible places like the Quail. <laughs> yes. You have to up my game a little bit. But indeed, we're going to get back to that once the coast clears and people start showing their cars and driving their cars again. I've been a customer of years, four years, and I want to thank your team for coming to my rescue when I had an incident with my car. Not at my own hand, but you guys treated me right, and it's hugely appreciated. So I can vouch for the service and the quality of the product. Accidents do happen and we're there when that happens. But one of the biggest things is that insurance is like a lot of those industries, like I suppose automotive journalism, that people may question its future or its value or certainly even its kind of sexiness. But 
It is tough to try to be really passionate about cars, but recognize there was for a lot of years, the core business was something like insurance. But for me, it's always been about the spirit of appreciation for and love of cars. And the business stuff kind of takes care of itself around that. If you stay true to that spirit, and if you follow where it's going and honor what it was doing in the past, it's kind of hard to miss. It's maybe not a core human desire, but it's one that's cared for and held by millions of people. And that's our world. There's no question about it. First of all, that's a great philosophy for life in general. And you guys are going above and beyond in supporting the hobby that we all love and the multi-billion dollars in business that go along with it. I mean, this classic car hobby represents not only a lot of metal, but a lot of people peripheral to the industry. Everybody from dealers to auction houses, mechanics, restorers, journalists, virtually everybody in the game. And I remember you and I were talking a long time ago as the landscape of the collector base was changing. Young people were finally getting their driver's licenses and a new generation was being ushered in. And the challenge, of course, was how do you engage younger generations in the car hobby? And I thought that's what we could talk about today is your initiative through Haggerty called Saving Driving. Why don't you tell us about that? I got into the car world in a very just sort of normal pedestrian family oriented fashion. My dad was a car guy and he worked on cars in the garage. And my older sisters and I all experienced cars through his love of them. And if we wanted to spend time with him, because that's what he did in his time off, you were in the garage wrenching on something. And so each of my sisters restored a car with him when they were young teenagers, I did. And so it was very, very homegrown. Regardless of the cars were cool, my first car that I still have is that 1967 Porsche 911 that I paid $500 for and restored with my dad. And I still have it. Man, weren't those the days? <laughs> yeah, look, yeah, those were the days. And lucky me that my first car was something cool. It wasn't until later after I went to college and grad school and grad school again, thinking I would go into some completely other part of the economy that I came into this family business, small insurance agency focused around this world and said, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot more here, but there's a lot of history behind it and a lot of concern about its future back then. Well, I'm going back to the mid nineties prior to our meeting each other, but you know, even up into the 2000s, people were like, oh my gosh, young people, are they even going to be interested in this stuff? It was absolutely changing. Then you started seeing massive changes in automotive media where we used to see hundreds and hundreds of car magazines start diminishing quickly. How are people going to get interested in it? Internet, of course, was driving some of it, but cable television, it became very much driven by cable television, I think more so than the internet actually for a lot of years. But this challenge of how to get the next gen involved was shared by many of us sort of keenly interested in seeing this magic happen long into the future. So we started with a lot of what you'd probably guess, kind of typical programs and ideas to get young people involved from youth judging programs, which we still non-COVID year, you know, we'll run over a hundred youth judging programs at car shows, just engaging young people in a lot of different types of activities. We've done everything from young designer competitions to model building to you name it. And even just being an advocate for going to the old guard car events and saying, where's your youth program? Is this even a family? It's not even youth. It's like, is this just even a family friendly place? Would it be so hard to put a bounce house over in a park? parking lot rather than cars being the thing that takes someone away from family have it be something that families really want to appreciate when they go see an event or what have you. So we did a lot of that stuff for a lot of years. We've done a number of nonprofits around this. One really focused on the next gen. It was originally called the Collectors Foundation and the Haggerty Fund. And now it's called the RPM Foundation. And it's a partnership we have with America's Automotive Trust located out of Tacoma, Washington. That was really focused on young people seeking careers around the automotive space. So is that like the McPherson College program? Yeah, that was really what I've been involved with McPherson 
and since the late 90s when I learned about it from Jay Leno. And I realized we need to get more people into the school. So we need to provide scholarships, created this foundation to fund things like scholarships for McPherson and other organizations. And now schools like McPherson, I mean, we've done over $5 million worth of that type of giving to that program since its inception. Otherwise, our carburetors and distributors aren't going to work anymore, are they? Well, or panel beaters or all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Who's going to take over the little shops? I really always thought it was more of an entrepreneurship challenge than even a skill transfer, knowledge transfer challenge, because you want to have young people want to go into these businesses and think that they can earn a living and have some fun to do with their own hands. But this all worked, but it was all kind of small scale stuff. Bluntly speaking, we were going to do it every year. We were never going to stop doing these youth programs. When we started our media business and started talking a lot about the car market, we would often report much more on the trends that were changing around the car world than what was happening in the past. So what are the up and coming cars? What are the cars on the rise? What's the next pick to buy at an auction? And less about, okay, let's just follow 1937 Packard values through the years. And I say this because I have a 1937 Packard and I guess I appreciate what it's worth, but it's just not news. But the fact that vintage four-wheel drives or the next gen and JDM influence Japanese stuff. That's more interesting, I think, to kind of drive interest for the next gen, kind of legitimize it, if you will. But then there was this nexus point, And I got to tell you, it was spring of 2017. I do some board work outside of Haggerty. And I was global chairman of this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. It was our global conference up in Vancouver, Canada. Picture a room with a couple thousand CEOs in it and speakers kind of coming up on stage. And then you drink a little wine later and pretend you're having a lot of fun. Anyway, so we had this epic speaker from the automotive space, speaking to this very generalist group of global CEOs. And this person was one of the best speakers I've ever seen at a conference like this anywhere, just engaging like a Walt Disney-esque, just showman. Boy, that's saying something. He just wowed the crowd with the future of autonomous vehicles and that the future was autonomous and first electrified, but then autonomous and think about how cities will change and the higher quality of time spent and value and all the stuff that was part of that real early hype around autonomous vehicles. We finished his speech by actually, we got out, we set a Guinness Book of World Records by having 1,875 CEOs simultaneously with virtual reality goggles on, taking a ride along with this guy through a city post-autonomous vehicle world and how differently it would be designed and how awesome it was to not have your hands on the wheel and all this kind of thing. Super cool. I thought I got to meet this guy because I was the chairman of this thing. I gave him the Guinness record and then I handed him my business card off stage and my Haggerty business card. He kind of looks at Haggerty, what is that? And I explain what I do. And he kind of got serious all of a sudden. He looked me in the eye and he said, I'm so sorry, I'm putting you out of business. And he grabbed my arm and said, seriously, you have to find something else to do. I like to think I understand this car world. And I think the passion for cars runs deep. I think it's much bigger than like the vicissitudes of an economy or just like little trends or even preferences for cars. It's bigger than preferences. But I did not have a quick response. I'm usually pretty good on my feet. And I was just floored that this guy was such a jerk. And it bugged me. And I went back home a week later and I was telling my team, I'm like, I was bothered by the fact that I know this guy is telling a truth about our future and some of it will come true. And I know we tell a truth about the future of the car world. And I know part of our truth will come true, but I didn't have that answer. I didn't have that story. I didn't have the overarching story. And so we worked diligently looking at this challenge. How big of a challenge is it that people will drive or not want to drive or the next gen? We did all these studies and studied the global perspective and the North American perspective in particular and realized, you know what? There does need to be a champion 
Champion for driving. We're not going to do it through a nonprofit because we've done two of those. And it's really tough to raise money around an automotive cause. And we realized we got to be the business that helps save driving and car culture for future generations. And not because it's just this thing we're going to fight for like some NRA thing, but because they're big elements that are good for us. It's about freedom. It's about space. It's about independence. It's about all of these other themes, not just about automation and efficiency and robotics and technology in the new economy. So it's been our mission and we are hardcore on it each and every day. We're launching initiatives or working on initiatives, still doing those kind of youth programming like things that we did before, but really going forward, like what's it going to do? What's it going to take to keep driving part of our world 25 years, 50 years, 100 years from now for its value to us, not just as some trade-off for something else? It's really what we're passionate about. And there's not a person of our you know, over 1,600 employees that doesn't understand our purpose at Haggerty, and we're working on it. Well, that's an impressive team and obviously an impressive vision, McKeel. You talk about car culture and really the bigger picture. Cars can make dreams come true in a way that very few other material trappings of our world can. I think that cars have a kind of a magical allure to those who let themselves be cast under their spell, almost regardless of age or generation. We talk about how kids are playing video games and have no interest in getting their driver's licenses. But we all know from experience that that's not true. You just have to introduce them to the world, as it were. They will encounter the analog world as well. And the fact that they come to it through a digital space doesn't concern me in the least. The only thing that concerned me, like say, for example, during the financial crisis, which is 2008-9, which probably was part of the driver behind why younger people weren't getting their driver's licenses as regularly as previous generations, because it's expensive and driving schools expensive expensive and insurance is expensive and everything is expensive for regular cars. You just want to make sure that they have on-ramps into being able to enjoy cars, affordable ways they can do it. It's got to be approachable. It's like one of the reasons why we bought a bunch of car events and we have an event company that does things. It's like, I don't want to see cars behind velvet ropes. If somebody's car they feel is too precious for young people to be around or for the crowds to get around, I don't care. Like we got to make this happen. That's what museums are for. But conversely, and much more importantly, people have to get involved in a hands-on kind of way. You've got so many initiatives. Talk about putting your hands on something. You alluded to the publishing business, and that was my bread and butter for so many years back when magazines were a good business to be in. I think you guys are producing one of the most exciting magazines around. It's the Haggerty Drivers Club magazine. It comes as part and parcel of my policy. And some fantastic content and some exceptional automotive contributors. I think it's really one of the best magazines around. You've got some great voices in there and covering some great content. It's funny, McKeel, you mentioned buying your Porsche 911S for 500 bucks. I think I paid 1200 bucks for my first car back in the Stone Age. It's hard to do that anymore. So engaging younger people, fresh generations, it does take something else. Tell us about some of your other initiatives. I mean, you've got everything from Haggerty Drive Share to Garage and Social. You've got some Concord. You've even got a what was probably a pretty highbrow California Melee. I know I drove that years ago, but congratulations on taking that over. Fingers crossed we'll be able to actually do this event this year, albeit smaller, and we're excited about it. There's an awful lot of pent-up demand for people to get out driving together, albeit with a lot of safe social distancing protocols and all that sort of thing. But I would say underpinning a lot of it early on, even our media efforts, was we made huge investments early on and continue to in that valuation automotive intelligence space. And part of it is that I realized in your career around automotive journalism 
and publishing. The new car world has a pretty solid track record of tracking its own data and understanding what's going on out there. But the vintage car world did not. It was much more anecdotal, a lot of ad hoc kind of pretty weak data science behind a lot of it and a lot of opinion. And some really apocryphal tales too. I mean, simply bad information. Of course. So one of the things I realized is as our business was scaling is that we were consuming a lot of those apocryphal tales and accepting them as truth. And we needed to, just for our own good, start figuring out, okay, is there something that can approximate objective truth around how big the car market is, what's really happening in the market, what's really selling, what's not. Auctions, as exciting as auctions are, they're just a tiny, tiny part. Like 10% of the market, aren't they? It's a fraction. That'd be on a great year. Just not a lot of truth going on around explaining what's really happening. And so our first, this whole idea of creating a data backbone behind which we could run our business, but then we could report and help people feel more informed about the decisions they were making. Because I do believe that like Neil Ferguson, the social commentator talks about that shopping is actually one of the big human drives in Western culture. And part of shopping is like looking up what something's worth. And I don't know what your experience was when I used to look through magazines like Octane or Classic and Sports Car, some of the great, I love looking at the classified ads, the big, really beautiful dealer done ones when they would list the price, because it was like, is that how much one of those, you know, like it's that idea of you're kind of cataloging your interests, you're kind of building your tree of car knowledge. It puts everything in context. It's like knowing what makes the difference between a hundred dollar bottle of wine and a thousand dollar bottle and the $10 bottles that I drink. That's right. And we know that what tastes good is good, but those other elements of meaning on top of them, including their value, there's more than just the economic value of a car. There is the cultural and historic value, which is one of the main reasons why we started the Historic Vehicle Association a number of years ago, because that's its main mission. We've sure enjoyed talking with the folks at HVA on our show here, and it's a great touch point for us. Strong mission for us. So we really started in that idea is like, I just wanted to have an objective way to report on what was really happening in the car world. So that's our automotive analytics world. On the back of that, we built what I think is really a world-class automotive media business run by Larry Webster and our whole team out of Ann Arbor. Real rogues gallery. I call it murderer's row of automotive journalists right now. We don't have every great one, but an awful lot of the great ones. And we're producing our main magazine, which is now the, I think, third highest circulation car magazine of any kind, audited circ in the world. And we'll be launching more. I won't say we're bullish on magazine and print. We're just saying we are confident that there's a place for it if done right. So we'll be actually launching about a a new magazine per year for different segments for the next three to five years. Good heavens. Well, I'm going to keep your phone number, McKeel, because that sounds like a lot of fun. And you've got a dedicated reader here too. It's interesting with your magazine. I'm not surprised that it's gaining traction fast, pardon that pun, because the very readers are an incredibly qualified audience. They are enthusiasts. And by the way, they pay money to get it. That's saying something. It's true. I think that one of the big headwinds that the automotive world faces, in addition to just maybe social preference and the costs and the other things I described, is the fact that the automotive world is one of the few pastimes or hobbies or whatever you want to call it, that has had a very strong, embedded and related parallel media structure around it. From the almost the very beginning, there were magazines, there were clubs with magazines. Eventually, as I described, pretty rich cable television world, pretty unusual, other than sports, in general as a category, you're hard pressed to think of a single pastime that has had a history of such strong media presence. But the problem is automotive media, the businesses were kind of a broken model, especially in North America, where they kind of just raced themselves into the bottom in so many cases of not charging for the content, not charging enough, losing the battle to get real 
adequate revenue from the reader and trying to turn it into an advertising model. And then when you see now the fact that the advertisers have as much or more data than the magazines do or the cable televisions do, it's a bad model. And despite whether you like them or not. And so our view is by hanging our main magazine off of the back of a membership, people have to pay. And yet also having some advertising, we're delivering a much higher quality product. We're just going to stick to it. If it's not for everybody, it's okay. You can watch our stuff on YouTube. We have one and a half million YouTube subscribers who watch our channel. It's part of what we do. We make a lot of noise, but we're going to make it really high quality. We're never going to be cynical about cars. We're going to have fun with them. We just have a great time with it. You're a gentleman and all the people on your team are gentlemen and gentlewomen. And I think that's something that is sorely lacking in the media landscape, especially as regards cars. And your guys, they've got a sense of humor sometimes and they'll tell a story in a fun way, but it's always done at a higher level. And that's a really great way to tell a story. We've worked hard on creating that voice. I think we've all enjoyed some of the funnier, wittier writers through the years. But when it really starts criticizing people who have such an identity wrapped up in the cars that they own. You know, I remember early on, we had a writer write an article that was pretty harsh about Corvairs. And it might've been just some Ralph Nader reference that just went wrong. (laughs) It just went too far. Right, right. We just got eviscerated by the Corvair community. And yet my oldest sister's first car was a Corvair Lakewood station wagon. We love Corvairs. Good heavens, that is a rarity. Hers was a one-off owned by Augie Pabst that was created as an ice racer. And it was stupidly sold when I was like a kid. I wish we had that one back. Oh, wow. But I remember just thinking like, I got to spend a lot more time crafting this voice. We cannot offend people. And there's a way to do it without being mean, without being cynical, still have fun with the quirks of cars because a lot of them are darn quirky and maybe not as reliable. And you don't have to overdo the Prince of Darkness jokes, but it's true. That's (laughs) right. It is true. But the good thing about the car culture, obviously this speaks to your vision, is that everybody's kind of welcome. You can be driving a seven-figure Ferrari or you can be driving a clapped out BMW 320 and you're still a member of the club. That's what makes it fun. Think of the Rat Rod community. Think of that incredible, the creativity, the lifestyle that goes with it, the music, the gatherings. That's not my particular cup of tea, but I have incredible appreciation for that affordable built car world. That's super fun. There are people. So we're going to honor our people. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Let's pick it up with McKeel Haggerty where we left off parse it out for us a little bit. Look, I'm an old guy. So to me, a car from the 60s is what a car should be. But clearly, it's not just the late baby boomers like me who are a part of the mix. What happens after it? Who are the other people that are making up the bulk of the audience now? Well, there is a lot of this, again, apocryphal understanding of what will happen with the next generation in cars. You know, A couple of just demographic and really generational study points is the baby boomers have been firmly in command of the vintage car world, enthusiast car world for quite some time. And it was a generation that created a lot of wealth, enjoyed spending time. And they were probably the last generation where cars were a huge part of the cultural element that everybody talked about. The silent generation, maybe a little bit even before, but where people really paid attention to auto shows, the big auto shows and car launches and stuff like this. I'm a Gen Xer, so kind of squeezed in between. And then you have this massive millennial and then the next generations to follow. 
important to remember, the millennial generation is the largest generation, and they're the children of baby boomers. And if there's anything that we have learned about the car world is that the older people get and the more money they make, they act a lot more like their parents. Now, that might be shocking to your listeners out there, but it is just a fact. Don't tell any 18-year-old kid that. <laughs> and I know that somebody who's 18-year-old and they're just dreaming that they're never going to have their parents' corporate job and they're going to become a beekeeper. And that is possible. They may become a beekeeper and make the greatest honey that Brooklyn has ever tasted. But the reality is very often they end up, as they get older, they tend to resolve and revolve their life around a similar set of activities. And it's often what they grew up with. So we've actually seen a pretty seamless generational shift of the next generation start to come to pick up the pieces here. It's not like they're all failing. And again, very large generations. And while the overall percentage of younger people people may not be as into cars as the earlier generations were. The numbers appear to be sufficient to sustain like significant car activity long into the future, but their interests are different. So the next generation probably doesn't surprise you. They're into the younger car guys and gals. They might be into more of the rally inspired cars, or they're into the vintage off-road vehicles, or they're into JDM. If you were to look at a brand that is just absolutely at the pinnacle of something that's attractive to a young person, you'd have to say BMWs in the 90s, an early 2000s. Whereas the Gen Xers, it's the Porsche 911. We've driven the Porsche 911 up. The baby boomers, it was the Corvette. There's an analog that follows all the way down. And what will happen is as that BMW collector maybe gets a 911 and then maybe makes a little bit more money, they might buy something better and better and better. And that's the path to connoisseurship, which we see happen with the top sort of segment of the market. What's interesting though, is the truly next generation, they learn a lot about cars and learn to love them by driving them first virtually on video games. That's a very interesting thing. Certainly something we never had a chance to do. Well, right. And so you look at Gran Turismo, you look at Forza, and you look at those two platforms. And if you look at the just historic libraries of cars in Gran Turismo, it's a virtual car museum. It's incredible what they have done and the brand recognition. And maybe they want to go create their newfangled, craziest, fastest, go fast car, but those cars are there and they're recognized in the platform. Same thing at Forza. They're learning more from there than they would have as we would have through a print magazine. That's okay. So there's a way, there are paths and there are other ways that can happen. And you mentioned earlier, talk about drive share. I'm not pitching this at all. I'm just recognizing it. No, no, pitch away because I think it's a really fascinating program. I want to learn more about it. Nobody believes that there would be widespread car sharing or ownership models in the vintage car world. And I too, as a naysayer, I thought, no way. These are people's babies. They're not going to share them. They're not going to rent them. I would never share my most prized vehicles. But it was really Airbnb that ran through the breach first. They ran through the breach and made people recognize that you might be willing to rent a house. I'm going to have a stranger in my house. Right, a stranger in your house exactly what your mother told you not to do and maybe make a little bit of revenue off of it. And we discovered that it's, well, it's not widespread in its adoption. There's an increasing number of people. And in fact, right now, the DriveShare platform is exploding. We need inventory on there, if anything. People interested in getting a little bit of revenue from a car they rent that they trust somebody to drive if they're on a trusted platform. And there are a lot of people that love to go rent something before they buy. And they want to go try something out. They want to check it out. They want to spend a weekend with it and see if it's even something they want part of their life. And so I just consider DriveShare less of a business as an on-ramp to cars. 
and it's an on-ramp for people to enjoy them. And it's a way for people to keep them. And a lot of people who have cars on our drive share platform have them on there so that they can go buy another car because they're making a little bit of revenue off of one maybe they care a little bit less about. Walk me through it. Let's say I've had my eye on, and by the way, I bought a lot of cars that I'd never driven before. And then sometimes you kind of wish you had driven them ahead of time. I won't name names, but you can imagine what they are. I think you insured a few of them. Let's say I got my eyes set on a 63 split window coupe. I find a guy in your drive share program. What do I do? Do I give him a call? Do I connect through you? Until we start seeing more widespread adoption. Geographically, it can be a little dispersed, the quality of the cars and where they are. But I'll give you a real world example so we don't have to use your 63 split window is that we had a guy who was traveling to California. So this is late 2019 data. So pre-COVID. Back when things were normal, right? And he was going to California and he had business meetings and a couple of days to spend some fun in Southern California. And normally he said he would have rented from Hertz or Enterprise or whatever it was. He had heard about DriveShare and he said, you know what? I've always been interested in a BMW 2002. There was one on the platform in Southern California. So he rented it for the week. I went and met the owner and there is a real interaction with the owner because it's not a completely digital thing. People want to trust that you're a real person. So he drove this car and he kind of showed it off and he had it in valet stands and it was getting parked up front. And he realized he absolutely loved the car. And within a month, he went and bought one. And so it was a way for him to kind of prove that that's a car he wanted in his life. He got to experience it for a couple thousand dollars or whatever it was for that week. It's that car on the platform would rent for a little bit more than some. So that's kind of how we view it. That's like the dream scenario. And we're seeing more and more of that happening. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got some Tony events like the Greenwich Concord Elegance. Tell us about that. That's the real deal. We believe car events are a huge part of that car culture piece and what needs to be saved for the future. There are car events for all sizes and shapes of different kind of car people. I think the ones that are going to face the biggest challenge are going to be the big commercial auto shows. I'm not sure the math works in the same way on those anymore. That's kind of been spiraling down for the last few years. Didn't take a pandemic to put a few of those guys out of business. Well, it's too expensive for the OEMs. They don't want to play. They don't want to spend millions of dollars for their cars to be on display for two weeks and not see any sort of appreciable commercial difference. But we're talking about the fun car shows. So when I think about maybe if you were to think about them as a range, you have Pell Beach Concours, D'Elegance, and the other few Concours that are not quite at that caliber, but nearby. And all the way down to your everyday, every Saturday, cars and coffee that takes place in your town everywhere. We have always had a presence at all sorts of those events. Haggerty has. So we'll have, in fact, typical year non-COVID, we'll have a presence at or activated over 3,000 car events around the world during a normal year. That's international. International. Yeah. We're in US, Canada, UK, and now Germany. So not global, but internationally. I love the big high-end events, but I also love cars and coffee. We have them right here where I live in Northern Michigan and I love it. Love just taking something out for a couple hours and no fuss, no muss, go for a drive afterwards. And that's why I think people like cars and coffee. But when we started realizing that we really do need to make sure that a few of the big showcase events have a real future long-term. A lot of those are small, actually relatively small businesses, and they may have a good brand and they're awesome, but relatively small businesses. And we wanted to kind of partner with them in a different way. The first one was with the Greenwich Concord Elegance, which takes place typically every early summer, May, late May, early June. Of course, the first year we bought it, we had to cancel it. And the second year we're running it, we're running it at the wrong time of the year. So, Well, everybody gets a hall pass for this one. Of course. So the idea is to sit there in Greenwich, Connecticut's wonderful, Tony, lovely, high net worth area with a beautiful little marina. And that's where this Concord takes place. And our idea idea was, okay, well, let's preserve it for the long haul. Let's put real digital infrastructure around it. Let's upgrade the publishing. Let's let this thing really kind of sing and be a celebration as much of cars as about Greenwich and the area, local chefs, 
restaurants, artists, and just let it be what it is. And then start experimenting around it with some of those different kinds of youth programs. Could we activate with local schools differently? All that stuff that's important to us and use it as a sort of test bed. We've also added the Concord of America, which is years and years ago, it used to be called the Meadowbrook Concord. And it's been... I wanted to ask you about that. The name's changed. Yeah. Concord of America at the Inn of St. John's in the Detroit area. And so we partnered with that board. Super excited to bring that under the fold. It'll be a kind of a transition year this year, but look forward to some exciting changes and really activating part of the greater Detroit area, Motor City, uh, to really bring them into the fold. And I think a Concord d'Elegance is a language that's unique. And that is, it's a usually some beautiful spot. It's Sunday morning. It's put on the sport coat. It's listen to some music. It's look at the world's most beautiful cars. But around the Concord d'Elegance can be a lot of stuff. That's where you can have tours. There can be auctions. There can be supercars. There can be any kind of different car. Like just imagine more of a festival environment in the days and, and even a week leading up to them. And that was really the model that we wanted to see preserved. Again, future generations. We think it's super important. I don't think anybody looks at the Kentucky Derby and questions its need or reason to exist. It just does. It just is. How many people, you know, I bet you, you've always been a wonderful dresser. Now you've been to derby parties. I've been to derby parties, right? I've been to the derby. It's an excuse to do a lot of things. And even people who don't care about equestrian events get excited about something like the Kentucky Derby. My one time going, I do believe I might've had like something like six mint juleps, but that was a different story for a different time. Well, get in line behind me because you didn't even get started, McKeel. The point is, I don't think these things need a reason to exist. They just needed a support mechanism. And our goal is imagine a half a dozen of these that we can help manage and preserve long-term is that they create a kind of network effect. You know, you have East Coast, you have Midwest, around the country where great events are there and they're not struggling to survive year over year because it's really hard for some of these events to exist. Let me ask you this. You mentioned the whole concourse scene. I know that in the professional world, there was such a thing as trade show overload. You think there's such a thing as concourse overload? What's the critical mass? When does it reached such a point that everybody just says, oh man, I can't do it anymore. The audience will decide that, but yeah, for sure. I mean, we were probably overloaded on concours. And I know for the best collectors, they feel a lot of pressure too. You just think of the best of the best only going to Pebble Beach. You got to have a logistics team to haul that stuff around the country if you're going to participate, not to mention get it out of the country for international events. Yeah. And so you're a whatever age collector with an amazing car collection of real cars that matter, like historically important important cars, they feel an obligation to have those cars seen out in the world, not just stuffed in a museum somewhere, but they're human beings too. And their summers are their summers. And do they want to spend eight weeks following their cars around at different events? Not a chance. There is a little bit of fatigue. And, you know, that's, I think, part of our thinking is let's create the best. Let's create a network and let's make it all work well together. Well, my hat's off to you for that, because certainly I think some of the events without naming names have gotten a little too big and a little too commercial and maybe don't have quite the level of intimacy or authenticity that one might find in some of these more historic places. So really look forward to getting back on the circuit and seeing some of these great shows firsthand. In addition to the next gen coming in and having a preference for different types of cars, we're starting to see people have a different preference for the types of events they want to do. And clearly driving events are much more important than they used to be. It's less important to be in that competitive show environment, going on a driving tour around cool places and having that be your kind of vacation for a few days to go around to drive great roads in a cool car. That's certainly been an important thing that we're seeing more and more of. 
There is no doubt about it that there's a kind of interesting lateral move happening in the track days, motorsports types events. We've made some pretty significant investments around motorsports and it's less about the racing and it's much more about just that enjoyment of people being able to go take a higher performance car into a track or a closed environment of some kind and feel that performance and upgrade their skills in some way that maybe they didn't think they could do it before without going wheel to wheel with somebody else who could crash into them. But just have a good time, somehow different than a regular experience. So we actually think there's real life there, real legs. And I get it. It's a more expensive part of the car world, but you don't have to have some Porsche cup car to go to a track day. You can go out and almost whatever you have right off a showroom floor and go have a good time at a track day or at an autocross. I would say the most dangerous thing at an autocross is if you were one of those orange cones, because there's a really good chance you're going to get run over. There's no question that cars today, even some of the more affordable ones, have such high envelopes of performance that you have to take them in a, to a track setting or an off-road setting in order to really exploit their potential. Of course, putting your insurance hat on, I imagine that these are real white knucklers for you. <laughs> it all works out. I mean, if, when people are honest about it and recognize that if you do go racing, you actually go racing, no, no cars insured when you're racing. When you're in a driver's education thing, it's a little bit different. We don't have a lot of problems with it. We really want people to get out there and drive and have fun. Well, there's no question that doing that with some of the newest crop of supercars and whatnot, the place to really have fun with them is in a setting where you can control as many variables as possible. It's the only way. I mean, I remember when in the first year of the 991-911, so I guess it was 2013, you know, I got one of the earlier ones. I love that car. It was great. I drove it in the wintertime with snow tires on. When the C7 Corvette first came out, General Motors sent me one of their press cars, said, hey, we know you like your 911, but you got to try this thing out. They shipped it up to me in Traverse City, and I'm like, what does try it out mean? Like, am I going to go? The car, the performance of those cars is so insane. What am I going to do? Like crash the car, wipe out somebody's mailbox. It's just not worth it. Go out on a little straight section of road and punch it for two seconds. The only way to appreciate those types of cars is on a track. In fact, I was talking to the SCCA guys who we have a great partnership with the SCCA. They have this program called Track Night in America, which is really meant to be come one all, bring your minivan. Doesn't matter what you have, like bring it, just experience it on a track. And they're actually starting to see more and more people particularly bring their Dodge, the Charger, Challenger crowd, cars that were not considered track cars by, you know, like sports cars. And he stretchy said they're like filling up these grids and these track nights. And they're like, oh, well, we didn't think of those ever kind of coming to these kind of events. And it's like, well, but the people don't care. They just want to go have fun. They want to feel a little speed and in a safe environment. Oh, that's fun. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. You were talking about shifting generations, Gen Xers, uh, and even younger owners. What are the cars of choice? Is there one car that's just absolutely on fire with your company right now, or one type of car that seems to get all the attention? You'd alluded to BMWs. Anything else? It's funny, you know, we publish this list every year called the bull market list, and I was kind of fascinated to 
you know, have people sort of see what it is. And there are different price points. And we've done these lists of different kind of entry points. But again, it's in general, the next gen, they're going to come for, it's affordable performance, right? So it's something that they like. And that's why when I look to those more inexpensive BMWs, even some of the Volkswagen models, but you look at like, say, Fox body Mustangs, we have a bunch of very big data sets and not just stuff we insure, but just bigger data sets around those types of cars. They're almost, I think they're at my last peak, they're over 800,000 Fox body Mustangs registered on the road in the United States today. Good heavens, they're still around? Uh, because by the way, that was an unsung here. What a fantastic car. Yeah, 800,000. And a lot of them are eight grand, 11 grand for a good one, five speeds. To me, when I sit there and think, okay, what are the entry points? What are the next generation going to look at? They're going to look at things like that, something they can afford. It's kind of cool. If they modify it or whatever, I don't care. I mean, it's great. Awesome. Put the different wheels on it. Do whatever it is you think you can figure out how to do. That's important. As I mentioned before, the kind of vintage SUV crowd or off-road, I don't even know really what to call them, different four-wheel drives. So we had seen that. Who'd have thunk, you know, that all of a sudden Broncos are the- Yeah, Broncos and internationals and Jeeps. Right now, Jeep seems to be on this like just absolute tear from a new car perspective, which is lifting the vintage Jeeps. Pickup trucks, a lot of parts of the country, that's their go-to daily transportation. So they want vintage versions of them, very affordable. You see a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, the Miata, that platform is 30 years old and super affordable. I mean, as we know, they're track day monsters for the Miata guys, and you can learn to drive really well in them. I saw a little first gen Miata on the road the other day in green, and man, that guy was having so much fun. And of course, the car looked, it was the size of a mouse compared to most of the monsters driving next to him and thought, you know, something that most guys don't know. Well, what I love is going to the historic car track days, whoever's putting them on and watching the Miata guys lap the Corvettes. It's the old story, right? Better to learn how to drive a slow car fast than start with a fast car. Pull out your crystal ball for a minute. And of course, you've alluded to this, and it's really the whole purpose of your saving driving program. But let's imagine that that speaker at your YPO conference was right, and that all of a sudden we're kicking back with a newspaper, reading Harry Potter, and letting the car do the driving. When that comes to pass, what do you think we are going to do with our old fossil cars? What's going to happen to the internal combustion cars? How are we going to use them? We're going to be in a blended world of electrified cars and internal combustion cars for decades and decades to come. And I am sure that the new cars will be electrified as fast as they can all figure out how to make it a good business model. And I think it's great. I don't care. I think it's awesome. And I think that you're also going to see a lot of these in the kind of more vintage enthusiast cars, you're going to see from these kind of rudimentary conversion kits that are out there, or even some of the more elaborate things. I think you're going to see some really competent conversions of vintage cars into electric vehicles, especially as battery technology becomes a little denser and easier to figure out how to place them in the car. And when people freak out about that, I'm like, we've been repowering cars since we were fixing them. So people turn in small blocks into big blocks. and That's right. Putting flathead V8s in Model Ts. and well, Yeah, exactly. I'm not concerned at all about the electrification. And I think it's great. And I think if especially for the ones, those conversions that are done competently and that honor the kind of style of the car. And if that's what gets the next gen into wanting to own that car is that it's electrified and they can hopefully not throw the engine away, the internal combustion engine away, but just you know maybe put it on an engine stand. I have no problem with it. I'm excited for it. And we will champion that model all day long because I think it's awesome for the internal combustion stuff in the coming decades, 30, 40, 50 years from now, eventually we will reach a point where fuel will become an issue, but you're going to have 
boutique fuel delivery. And the number of people right now that have racing fuel delivered, we're a long way from this just kind of going away. So that's how we view it. On the autonomous side, the biggest challenge that the autonomous vehicle world has isn't just the technology to see if the cars can navigate safely, especially in a rural area, because that's a long way off, I think. And even the utility of why will become an issue out in certain parts of the world. Is it going to happen in city centers? Are you going to be able to drive in the center of New York with your hands on the wheel in the city of London already? It's internal combustion cars or any cars heavily regulated. And and that's what will happen. It'll be regulated in cities first. That's just going to happen where it happens. So if you want to go driving, it's probably going to be a suburban or rural activity ultimately. And that's okay. I don't want to drive in the city center. I want to drive on Highway 1. You're not going to drive your 911S downtown Manhattan anyway. I want to be on Highway 1. I want to be on Route 66. I want to be on M22 up here in Michigan, not in the middle of city, you know, in the middle of traffic. So my caveat is we want to save driving, not commuting. And I think what COVID has helped us is to understand that maybe we all don't need to be commuting in the same level. Maybe it'll help ultimately, you know, once we get public transport and things back working again, there'll be a different mix of cars on the road. And hopefully for those who actually like to drive, that's good news. McKeel, that is absolutely brilliant. You want to save driving, not commuting. Man, I second that emotion. McKeel, you'd alluded to a couple of interesting cars there, obviously a 911S and a Jag E-Type. I can't let you go without having you share just a little bit of your automotive background and tell us what are the favorite cars in your garage? The 67 911S is a favorite and kind of exists in a different plane for me. So whenever somebody asks me, what's your favorite car? If you have to pick one, I usually say like, well, other than that one, because that one is just so unique to me and so unique to my life that I, I kind of have to exclude it. I have a number of cars that were my dad's that, and we, it was a passion we shared together that were, you know, kind of his, it was kind of his stuff, things like a 33 Ford truck and a 56 Thunderbird and those sorts of things. But I have a very eclectic interest in cars. I like all sorts of different types of things because I like ex- very different automotive experiences. So ranging from 1915 Model T, that's a crank start up to a Dodge Demon that's in the garage. I always wanted a Aston Martin of some time because when I got my 911, I just envisioned that somehow I think James Bond really wanted to drive a 911 and not an Aston Martin. So I eventually did a multi-year restoration on a 1960 DB4, which is really fun to go out and drive. My dad was into full classics, but could never really afford one when he was alive. So past couple of years, a couple of cars have made their way into my garage. That 37 Packard I mentioned earlier, a V12, which he was, fa- he was so fascinated by the Packard 12. And I take my mom for rides in that. And then I have a 16-cylinder Cadillac V16, 1931. That's super cool. I showed that at Pebble Beach one year, but I'm, I'm just, I like quirky stuff too. We have kind of my personal cars. Then we have a larger Haggerty driving collection, which we have a garage with a, what we call the Haggerty learning garage with a full restoration staff. Any of our employees can go out there and sign up to learn to work on cars and to partake in one of the restorations. We always have one car being disassembled and one being put back together at any given time. And we're now now doing this also in our Golden, Colorado office and soon in our Columbus, Ohio office as well, just because we want people to be able to go out there and say, hey, look, I I worked on that 64 and a half Mustang. I I spent some time on the 69 Camaro, but we've done weird things like Sunbeam Tigers and we did a Duchevaux, Citroën Duchevaux, just because I wanted to torture everybody. Well, that would be torture, but fun torture after a fact. I like them all. We did a World War II Army Jeep that the media team used in that 
70th anniversary reenactment in Normandy, which is, that's an important car to me now because it's not one that I really wanted. But when it came back, it had sand on the floorboards from Normandy in it. And I bagged a little bit of it up and kept it. I just think that cars tell stories. They're experiential. I was like to imagine like, what would the original drivers of these cars, what would their lives have been like? What would their day have been like? And that's just, I'll do all sorts of stuff. So fun to play in my world. Sounds like an incredible world and one that you're making better for all enthusiasts to these old cars and have to thank you for not only keeping it alive, but for pushing it into the future, paying it forward as it were. You know, that's kind of a cliche these days, but it sounds like that's what you're really trying to do with your saving driving initiative and so many of the other programs. So many, in fact, that I simply have to ask you back on the program to talk about more next time. You know, happy to share further in the future. Thanks to McKeel Haggerty, CEO of Haggerty Group, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.